Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Welcome back to The Bulwark Coast of Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I am culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be rejoined today by Ryan Fonder. Ryan is a film business reporter for the Los Angeles Times' Company Town and the host of the entertainment business newsletter, The Wide Shot. Uh, and I actually asked Ryan to be on today because I was reading his newsletter, The Wide Shot, uh, and found a very interesting story that conflates with a lot of my different interests. Uh, and that is <laughs> a new poll from a screen engine ASI about the most heard of and most seen best picture nominees. Now I, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but uh, Ryan, why don't you fill us in on what this was polling, who this was polling and what the results actually show? Yeah. So um, I asked screen engine ASI to do a little bit of research on the Oscar nominees. Uh, we also did this last year. Uh, when the when the Oscars were you know, notoriously very niche just because there were not that many films that were released in theaters. And I wanted to see if anything had, had changed uh, this time around, if the nominees had gotten any more populist, if they had nominated pe- uh, films that people had actually seen or heard of. So uh, Screen Engine ASI polled about 4,500 general entertainment consumers. So not necessarily moviegoers, but people who consume entertainment in a variety of ways and asked them very simply, are you aware of these movies? And then put the movies in front of them. And have you seen these movies? And that is sort of the results that you see in the polling, which would indicate, I mean, the top line is that no, a lot of people who generally consume entertainment are not aware of the majority of the films that have been nominated for Best Picture. And among the front runners, it's it's much lower because they're pretty indie. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just run through some of the numbers here. The, the, uh, the Best Picture awareness, uh, the percentage of general entertainment consumer respondents aware of each Best Picture nominee. West Side Story did the best with uh, 55%. And that was the only movie over 50% uh, general awareness. Dune is at 49%, King Richard at 42%, uh, Don't Look Up at 40%, and everything else is 25% or below. I am curious here uh, to get your take on this because there's a slight disconnect between most heard of and best most watched. The most watched movie was actually Don't Look Up, which of course is on right. Netflix. It's a Netflix film, but it is not the the movie that people are most aware of. I have a theory about all of this, which is that the theatrical experience still has a big benefit for these types of movies insofar as at the very least an advertising campaign forces people to be aware of them. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the West Side Story numbers are probably helped by the fact that it shares a title with one of the most famous movies ever made. So people are just kind of going to be aware that something like that is happening or might recognize it on a survey. Um, But yeah, I I agree. It does seem that having something on streaming just kind of 
doesn't help get people excited or doesn't help get people aware. There's also just like the theatrical campaigning that studios have done for decades and decades and decades. And they haven't really quite figured out how to replicate that with a digital only release. So yeah, I, I, I do see that with the Dune numbers, you're kind of seeing the, the combination of the two, because obviously that was on HBO right. Max and right. on in theaters at the same time and actually did fairly well in theaters considering that it was cannibalized by HBO. Yeah. Dune is the biggest box office hit out of any of these. I grossed 108 million domestic, something like that, 400 million worldwide, even though, as you say, it was on HBO Max. Uh, King Richard did less well. It was also on HBO Max. But that is even even that movie still, again, very well known. And I think at least in part, again, because of that advertising campaign why why is it that netflix can have the most watched movie but still not the one with the most awareness i mean i i feel like netflix doesn't quite understand how to market individual films as opposed to the service as a whole yeah that's been a problem for netflix for a long time and i think i think just the experience of going on to netflix is a big part of it because a lot of people just use it as their home screen for their smart tv uh that's kind of how i operate you know and if 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 you do that i mean that's a powerful marketing tool for netflix uh to promote filmmakers if it wants to you know it can put leonardo dicaprio and jennifer lawrence and a big sign saying don't look up right on the home screen and like a general consumer is going to see those big stars and say yeah why not yeah so i mean a lot of critics really hated that movie but you know clearly people have seen it it's it's been funny watching the discourse around don't look up especially when it came out and really picked up steam on the service because i think a lot of people saw those numbers and uh, that Netflix put out saying, oh, this has been watched for 300 million hours or minutes or however they calculate it. And it's like, how can that possibly be? But, you know, I think you're seeing a little bit more evidence that that might actually be true, that people actually did watch this movie. I mean, clearly people watch this movie. Yeah, I mean, I I am not shocked by that. I mean, this is what Netflix kind of is is built for in a certain way, right? Like Red Notice did similar numbers. They said that Red Notice did 320 million hours in its first 28 days or whatever, you know, some some insane gaudy number. But, you know, these these kind of big star high awareness uh, sorts of things do seem to do pretty well for them, at least in terms of capturing eyeballs. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to sort of compare it to another Netflix title that's on the list, I mean, Power of the Dog is much lower. I think, you know, Star Power probably has quite a bit to do with that. You know, Benedict Cumberbatch is a pretty big name, but he's not Leonardo DiCaprio. It's just not the same thing. Or Jennifer Lawrence. I mean, those are yeah, I mean, those are two arguably the two biggest stars in the world of filmmaking, let's let's talk a little bit about Power of the Dog and Coda, because those are the two kind of putative front runners at this point, I think, for Best Picture. Everyone seems to think it's going to come down to those two. Coda has been seen by 4% of the audience, and uh, the Power of the Dog has been seen by 6% of the audience. Is the Academy freaked out about this at all? Because I I have to imagine this is, this these are not numbers they like to see. Yeah, and they this is not a new thing for the Academy either. I mean, obviously, Nomadland was a movie that was very, I mean, it, it had big, like, cinematic scope, but it wasn't, like, a big commercial picture by any, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. 
the academy has had this problem since i mean the best example of this could be the hurt locker right mm-hmm. i mean way back when right. i think that had the the lowest box office of any best picture winner at yep. the time and you know that was that was quite a few years ago so this has been kind of an ongoing thing for the academy where they continue to nominate these films that overlap quite a bit with the you know critics choice awards rather than what people have actually gone out and and seen and yeah with the 10 nominees uh expansion they have brought in things like mad max fury road and and dune gets in there and and king richard too but what they really really like to honor is getting smaller and smaller yeah i mean it's interesting because you know once upon a time a movie like lord of the rings return of the king could win best picture right and that's kind of a you know you could just say that's a big almost lifetime achievement award for the series right which which had done so well or yeah but but a movie like titanic or a movie like uh braveheart right these are these are gladiator these are like big pictures that also appeal to you know large numbers of audience members and still did okay with critics and yet that sort of thing, it really does feel like it has kind of disappeared from the the best picture talk, at least in terms of what will what actually has a chance at winning. I mean, I would argue that it's even disappeared from the business of movies in general. I mean, yeah, you do. You really don't see a lot of critically acclaimed movies being put out that are kind of in that Titanic mindset of like a big epic story that's not a superhero or action franchise necessarily but costs a lot of money everyone everyone went and saw it like there's just not as much of a monoculture around film anymore and i feel like it's more of a reflection of how the film business and the audience has changed rather than anything necessarily that the academy is doing Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the list of movies that came out this year, I mean, what would they nominate that would rise to the level of of a Titanic commercially and artistically? Yeah. I mean, I, the, the argument over Spider-Man No Way Home is so tiresome to me because I, yes. I, I get very, <laughs> I get, too. I get, I get very, I get very annoyed by the comic book. And I say this as somebody who likes Spider-Man No Way Home. I, I want to be clear on that. I like Spider-Man No Way Home. I thought it was a, a fine movie. Uh, I'm glad it has made almost $2 billion at the box office. Good for them. But the, the folks who are, you know, arguing that it's some sort of outrage that, you know, this comic book movie didn't get nominated for Best Picture and that no comic book movie ever gets the respect except for like Black Panther, which got nominated for Best Picture and Joker, which got nominated for Best Picture. Like, I, I just like I just don't I don't get it. It drives me drives me a little crazy. I In the vein of what you're talking about, a movie like The Last Duel 15 years ago might have been a Best Picture nominee slash, you know, big budget action adventure crowd-pleasing sort of movie. But like you say, audiences just aren't going to that sort of thing anymore. Yeah, exactly. So the Academy, I, I, I kind of feel bad for them a little bit because they're in a, in a rock and a hard place with these. Yeah. They don't have that many popular movies to nominate. And, you know, they get blamed for... It, it, it's, it's a bummer that the Academy's purpose now, at least in some people's mind, seems to be to almost save theatrical movie going or save the movie business, which um, I feel like there's it has to be other the other way around. Yeah, I am curious to see what happens over the next couple of years as more of these 
Oscar favorite type pictures start migrating to streaming more and more where they just make more sense financially than they do at the box office. But we'll see. We'll see what happens there. All right. Let's uh, let's let's move on to the next thing that you've been working on. There is uh, lots of controversy in the world of Disney right now. When I was uh, DMing with you yesterday to set up this conversation, you were you were out reporting on what was what was what's happening at Disney. So what's going on? Yeah. So actually, yesterday, um, I was out in the field in Burbank at Disney headquarters where some employees were staging a walkout to protest Bob Chapik, uh, the CEO's handling of the parental rights and education bill in Florida, which opponents have dubbed the don't say gay bill. And so I was reporting on that and, and, and talking to folks and uh, taking pictures and, and the whole thing. Yeah. So what's, what did you learn when you were out reporting the story? Yeah, so when I was out there, it was very interesting. You know, we were trying to find, first of all, we were trying to find where people were gathered, you know, me and the photographer out there. Um, but what happened was at first, they, first some people started gathering, I'd say to around 100 or so, gathered around at the Roy Disney Animation Building in Burbank, which if you've ever driven past there, or a lot of people kind of know it, it's famous. It has the Sorcerer's Apprentice hat, big famous building. Uh, on the Disney lot. And so, you know, a bunch of people gathered around, did a little group photo, and then literally walked out of the building. And they marched down around the perimeter of the lot, ended up at another gate, and did another group photo and dispersed. And to me, it was a pretty extraordinary scene because Disney, you know, with the exception of uh, park employees protesting over you know, pay and stuff like that, you really don't see Disney employees coming out to publicly denounce or confront uh, upper level management, especially the CEO himself, and especially over political matters that the CEO would certainly argue are not core to what Disney actually does. So to me, this this signals kind of a shift in you know uh, American business culture where you have a younger generation that's just more willing to uh, take on their bosses and also demand that their bosses reflect their own personal values. Mm-hmm. In your in your piece, you talked about uh, Disney culture and kind of the the lack of this sort of thing. What has that culture been like over the years? I mean, it, this is unusual. You don't you don't really see a lot of turmoil like this from the House of Mouse. Yeah, Disney is unique in a certain way. It's not like other companies. It's not even like working at Sony or Universal or something like that. People who go to work at Disney, especially people who work in animation, do so after considering that goal a pinnacle achievement. Like they go there, like they grow up wanting to have worked at Disney and getting into it is like a life's dream. And I talked to people yesterday who spoke to me about this, about how this was their dream job, you know, that they got maybe three or four months ago and were outraged by a a decision that the company made and were already um, ready to, to protest about it. So to me, Disney has often been very insular and employees have been very loyal. It's also been a very top-down management culture. So leaks to the press are quite rare, unless they're done in some very managed way. So yeah, this was kind of stunning to see this happen at Disney in particular. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, it, w- what's interesting about this story to me is that 
it was the neutrality itself that sparked the angst. I mean, I, I, I yeah. looking at this, looking at this as a as an outsider who you know keeps pretty close tabs on what's happening in the world of politics. It seemed to me like Chapek's original statement that our product is what changes the world, not our political statements, and also our political statements will be used by the proponents of this bill against us. And in furtherance of the bill in other states, you know, versions of it will be used in other states to to try and get this thing done. It actually struck me as like a relatively reasonable and nuanced way to walk the line. And it it I think it seems to have made things much worse. Yeah. And you could also make the case that he was absolutely right that this would be weaponized. Now you could also make the case that Ron DeSantis is going to call your big company a woke corporation and and use you as a punching bag no matter what you do. But yeah, I mean, clearly this CEO misjudged or miscalculated how a lot of the most vocal folks in his organization would respond internally and even online. Yeah. Has there been any rumblings? I think I've I've read rumors elsewhere that, you know, Bob Iger, whose shadow continues to loom large over the the Disney empire, um, the previous CEO, is there are rumbles of his displeasure at, at the way his handpicked heir apparent has kind of handled this. Have you have you heard anything like that? Yeah, there was this great story in uh, CNBC that an old colleague of mine, Alex Sherman, wrote talking about the falling out between these two people. And, you know, it's interesting because Bob Iger was the person who selected Chapik uh, to mm-hmm. run the company. But also Bob Iger stuck around for two years as executive chairman and his presence looms large. And he's highly respected in the industry from everything that he did with acquiring Marvel and Lucasfilm. And then there was this incident that Alex reported on where a New York Times columnist, Ben Smith, was writing a column right after the coronavirus had basically crippled the company. And Iger gave a quote that sort of suggested that he was coming back in to help Chapik uh, run the company. And it's pretty clear that Chapik did not like the idea of the old guy coming back and taking over. The idea that he would need help steering the ship. I mean, the whole, which is understandable because Chapik is, is, is an operations guy. Like, this is the kind of thing that he should theoretically be perfectly suited for, would be guiding a company through that kind of operational crisis. So, yeah, I think that, that led to a lot, of, a lot of problems. And, yeah, clearly that's having some ramifications. Yeah. Are there any kind of rumblings about Disney employees using this power in in other ways to protest involvement in China or, you know, putting turning red out in Saudi Arabia or, or something like that? I know this is right. this is what my conservative friends say when I mention this. They're like, well, yeah. the, the, the hypocrisy here is astounding. I mean, getting getting mad about the Florida bill is fine, whatever. But like when you're doing business via Disney in a country where like a literal ethnic cleansing is happening, come on, give us a give us a break here. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely the wedge that Disney's critics are going to use. And it does seem pretty legitimate when you when you think about it. Um, Yeah, I'm not really hearing a lot of that from uh, Disney insiders. The thing that you do hear is that people are very upset with this decision to move a lot of the corporate uh, positions from Southern California to 
Florida. Like there was this mm-hmm. whole initiative to take about, I think it was around 2,000 employees, including a lot of the Imagineers, which are the people who designed the parks and the parks attractions, and take them and, and move their jobs to Florida. People are very upset about this, and it seems that some are using this wedge issue as a way to get the company to maybe reverse that decision. But I'm not sure if that'll work. Interesting. Uh, all right, one last thing uh, before before I let you go here. Uh, Amazon's purchase of MGM has been approved. Yeah. MGM is now part of the Amazon family. What's going on there? What are we looking at in terms of the actual real-world impact of this in the over the next you know couple years here? Yeah, well, it's still not clear how the MGM business is really going to fit into the Amazon world. Um, as you know, MGM has stuck pretty steadfastly to this practice of releasing movies in theaters exclusively before sending them to streaming. Amazon has a very different model with Amazon Studios, where it does a lot of day and date or just straight to streaming. And also, there's a big voice over there at MGM, though not technically at MGM, Mm -hmm. but Barbara Broccoli, Mm -hmm. um, who essentially runs the creative on the uh, James Bond franchises, which is, which is their biggest franchise, which is yeah. kind of like the, the, the golden goose over there. So they, they won't have a lot of creative control over, over those movies. Yeah, we should remind people how that works exactly. What, how does Barbara Rockley and Eon Productions or uh, Entertainment, whatever, whatever that company is called, how does their ownership of Bond impact how it can be used? Yeah, well, Barbara's the daughter of the original producer of the James Bond franchise. And so uh, it's basically through inheritance, but she has very strong control over the creative and also the the money, the merch, a lot of it. And this became a source of contention in Hollywood. You know, when uh, Sony used to distribute the James Bond movies domestically and you would get these releases like Skyfall uh, crossing a billion dollars worldwide and people saying, oh my God, like Sony must have made out like bandits on this. Well, not really because they don't actually take in that much of the money. I mean, they get they get fees and stuff like that, but it's really extremely small compared to the, the total box office and what you think they might be making. So it's not that profitable for the companies that just, just control the, the distribution rights. Yeah, and MGM and Eon split the production rights is that is that basically how yeah, it works? Yeah, it's basically 50-50. It's basically 50-50 on the on the economics uh and the ownership, but I mean she basically has veto power on the creative. Right. So, you know, the Amazon can't make a James Bond TV series and put it on Prime Video without their permission more or less. No, yeah, and even if they wanted to send the next James Bond feature film straight to Amazon Prime, you know, they need her sign off. Yeah. Um, which, as you, I mean, that would be a, leaving an enormous amount of money on the table. Yeah, they wouldn't uh, be even in that. these. <laughs> they would even not. even in these, you know, weird box office times. That, that's a that's a, a dicey proposition. Yeah. Um. So MGM MGM kind of famously sold off a large portion of their library to Ted Turner uh, in the 1980s, but they still have some 4,000 movies or or whatever under their control. What's going to happen with those? Are those going to all be thrown up on Prime Video? Is that is that uh, going to be a, a big boost there? What are we What are we thinking? Still don't know because as we've heard before there's a lot of rights that have already been sold off or licensed and you know a lot of those rights are still tied up with other streaming services and uh, and and pay tv 
firms. So uh, it's going to be a while before uh, Amazon could even really think about clawing back all those rights and putting everything from MGM straight onto its uh, Prime fl- platform. And you know they also want to dig into the the vault a little bit and see if they can you know, remake a bunch of things or reboot or, or turn things into uh, into TV shows, kind of like the way that uh, that FX did with uh, MGM and Fargo, which turned out to be a pretty big hit. But a lot of that stuff has kind of been picked over over the years, mm-hmm. like from your uh, RoboCops. There was a remake of that, I think, a while ago that mm-hmm. didn't work out too well. You know, the Rocky franchise has been going on and on and on. There's some older material in there that's a little bit more obscure that they could probably dig out that that we're not thinking of because uh, we're not in the mix digging through the library. But uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting if they or you know, whatever they do with Pink Panther. I don't know. It's yeah. Well, I mean, this is so. This is the holy grail of modern filmmaking is IP, right? And and MGM does have a fair amount of intellectual property there to exploit. Which is, I assume, why we're going to end up with you know Rocky versus RoboCop series at some point in the near future. Right, right, yeah. And is that worth? Was that worth uh, Amazon paying eight and a half billion dollars to get? I mean, you know, they have the money, so yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I always like to end the show by asking what I should have asked. What uh, what's going on in the world of Hollywood business that uh, folks should know about that we didn't discuss here today um, on any of the topics we have discussed now or uh, anything else? Anything else you might be working on? Yeah, let's see. What have we done? We've done Disney drama. We've done Disney drama, Oscars, Oscar drama. We've done MGM. Um, I feel I feel like we got a lot of a lot of traction on the whole controversy over the Batman price hikes a little while ago, but that that's all that also feels like it was a hundred years ago at this point. <laughs> I mean, it does, it does. It was I guess it debuted what three weeks ago now, yeah, three, three four weeks ago, uh, and it does feel like a million years ago. Um, but the I, I do think that's an interesting question here. Do you think that AMC and other theater Owners are going to implement this across, uh, you know, the new big releases that we're going to see the next. I don't. What is Doctor Strange? Or I guess Morbius is the next comic book movie. Yeah, is Morbius going to cost a dollar more? Yeah, it's a while before the next really big like surefire hit, right? Yeah, I mean for the for the things that are 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 in movie theaters and they're sure things, they're surefire hits like Doctor Strange. I mean, looks like it's kind of a why not kind of thing for movie theaters like they need more they need me if if everything if all the box office sales are going to be concentrated around these big tent poles it doesn't really make sense for them to leave any money on the table now what i think like a lot of people in the industry would like to see more experimentation on is uh, discounts for smaller movies uh, maybe like in the middle of the week, maybe in the third weekend or after to see if that can actually improve the rates of attendance on those movies. Because for the movie yeah. theaters, if if you get someone in the door, like for a smaller movie, you can still sell them $8 popcorn. And that's where they make most of their margins anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I still don't understand why AMC or Regal or whoever have, haven't been, you know, promoting like, come see Cyrano. It's only eight bucks or, yeah. you know, some, something like that, because I like obviously there is a there's a softness in that that part of the market and getting those people back to the theater is the most important thing they can do. Right I guess now. there are a lot of people that would say, you know, especially filmmakers 
like, oh my God, I can't believe like you're, you're discounting my movie. Like it's, it's, this is like, what are you saying? Like, this is, this is, that this is worse. I mean, I think there's a fear that, um, that discounting certain movies will, um, will indicate a, uh, will indicate lower quality somehow. Um, mm-hmm. I would question that. I'm not sure there's any evidence for that. And I feel like people can probably understand that, uh, that, that a discount on, on Cyrano and compared to Spider-Man No Way Home is just a recognition that those are different kinds of movies. Uh, not that one yeah. is worse than the other, which is like a kind of a crazy comparison to make anyway. Um, but yeah, that would, be, that would be really interesting to see if that actually worked. But the problem is no one's really done it. Fingers crossed. I've been, I've been, for the record, Sonny Bunch has been calling for that for ever since AMC announced their, their plan. You got to give people, you got to give people something if you're going to charge them more somewhere else. That's, that's my, my take on that. Yeah. Ryan, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Go subscribe to his newsletter. Go sign up. Ryan Fonder's Wide Shot. Go look it up. Sign up for it at the LA Times. It's free, uh, which is always nice. Free is, is good. Free, free is uh, good. Yeah. Free is good. So uh, go sign up for that and uh, read his newsletter. It's one of my weekly must reads. So check it out. Uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark, and I will be back next week with another episode. See you guys then. 